0: Today on Ag News
1: Daily. That's where I would say, especially as we look at Russia and Ukraine, we are starting to see that. That as we see these political issues and, and building up to a possible military intervention there, that is having a dramatic impact.
0: Good afternoon and happy Wednesday from the Ag News Daily Podcast. It's Ashton Carr and Delaney Howell today. Delaney, what do you know on this Wednesday afternoon? Well, today is Cinco de Mayo, Ashton. you going to go have some Mexican food later? I completely forgot that today was Cinco de Mayo. I'm not having Mexican food later. My little sister, her FFA banquet is tonight. So I'm going to go over there and have some really great barbecue though. The Prosper FFA banquet always has like Really, really great barbecue ever since, you know, I have been around and gone to those banquets because, of course, that's where I grew up. So I'm really excited to have some
2: home cooking tonight. Well, that'll be good. FFA banquets always uh, seem to have good food. That's definitely for sure.
0: Yeah, no margaritas, though. I don't think that would probably be uh, appropriate to take with me to the banquet. But Yeah, maybe not. (laughs) I'm going to have a margarita. I'll have one for you tonight. Okay, thank you for keeping me in mind. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Delaney, like you said yesterday, EPA Administrator Michael Reagan went to Iowa this afternoon and toured a ethanol plant. Do you have anything for us today about that?
2: Let's see. Yes, he was in Iowa yesterday and did a little touring, it sounds like. I don't have a ton of news on that other than it sounds like he did talk a little bit about uh, biofuel. It sounds like a lot of farmers had questions who were involved in this tour yesterday and discussion yesterday about what he planned to do with the biofuels industry since stepping into office. And he heard from about 30 farmers on concerns ranging from renewable fuels and electric vehicles to livestock production and waters of the U.S., WOTUS and the Clean Water Act. Um, But basically, it sounds like he pledged to uphold or made a promise to biofuels, I should say, that he's going to continue to fight for them in D.C. Other than that, though, Ashton, I didn't have a whole lot on that front. Did you? Um, I mean, he talked from what I can see a bit about the renewable
0: volume obligations, and he kind of dissed the last administration a little bit, saying that they were left with a deficit. Um, They were some decisions Reagan said that were not made for 2019, 2020, and 2021, so they're making RVO a priority, it sounds like, but honestly, we haven't seen much come from that, and RVO has been a topic of conversation since Reagan stepped into office, but
2: honestly, that's really all I have about it. Yeah, I think it was mostly just a trip to make uh, make good, make some rounds, meet some of our, the constituents in Iowa, et cetera. So not a, not a big news story coming out there, but maybe more of a gesture trip, I should say. But another gesture we saw made now is a trade deal with the European Union. Their uh, trade chancellor, Angela Merkel, said in a speech that a trade deal between the U.S. and the EU would, quote, make a lot of sense. And yes, if you're thinking back and thinking, haven't we already tried to have trade discussions with the EU? You are correct in thinking that. Uh, We saw the Trump administration push pretty hard to try and have some sort of free trade agreement between the US and the EU. But they were not real keen to negotiate with us while Biden was in office and have even gone as far now as saying that He was a bully to them, and that was why they didn't really want to move forward with any sort of a trade deal when he was in office. But Biden has expressed a keen interest to restoring this transatlantic relationship with the EU, and it sounds like this will be one of the trade deals that this administration will be working forward or working on moving forward. But uh, it sounds like the EU is, as of recent, excited to partner with the US because they are trying to compete on a world market against countries such as China and Russia and have apparently been having a tough time dealing with that trade relationship, that trade uh, negotiation there. So it sounds like we should see some sort of trade negotiation here. I don't know when they're going to kick off. It was just a statement made by the EU, but... I'm sure we'll probably see something coming out of the White House regarding that statement here before we know it. Well, Delaney, we're supposed to
0: be talking about trade under the Biden administration later on this week. So we that's just another talking point that we can have. And hopefully we can get some insight onto. I mean, the Biden administration, they just celebrated 100 days in office. So hopefully now we can kind of get a little bit more information about where exactly we're headed with the Biden administration. Yep. Absolutely. Good good call there, Ashton. We'll have to make sure that question gets asked tomorrow. Absolutely. Well, Delaney, I have a piece of news here coming from the USDA. I don't necessarily know that it is news, but just something that people can mark on their calendars if they're not already busy tomorrow afternoon. The USDA announced a virtual listening session for beginning farmers and ranchers to learn how COVID-19 impacts their farming operations and to get their feedback on USDA assistance. Last year, of course, was a pretty terrible year all around and folks started eating more from home and maybe there was an increase, you know, I don't have any numbers handy or anything on people kind of turning towards agriculture, whether that's, you know, hobby farming or just trying to provide a little bit more at home since we saw kind of a shock in the shelves but this listening session will take place like i said tomorrow may 6th from 1:30 to 3:30 p.m. eastern time the usda considers anyone who has operated a farm or ranch for less than 10 years to be a to be a beginning farmer or rancher gloria montano green who is usda deputy undersecretary for farm production and conservation will be joined of course, by a few more names that I'll say here in a minute, but Green was quoted as saying, We invite beginning farmers and ranchers to share their experiences in navigating the USDA's resources for assistance after the pandemic. You know, they're just inviting these quote unquote beginning farmers and to get some feedback on how the USDA assisted them. But I mean, these older, you know, generational farmers also, I think, should be taken into consideration and you know, they should be able to kind of voice their opinions as well. But I think that this is a good starting point, at least. But Green will be joined by May Wu, who is the USDA Deputy Undersecretary for Marketing and Regulatory Problems or Programs, excuse me. And then they will also be joined by FSA Administrator Zach Ducheneau and Sarah Campbell, the USDA's National Beginning Farmer and Rancher Coordinator during this listening session. If there are any beginning farmers out there that are wanting to voice their opinion, get a little bit of advice on how they can move forward out of the pandemic, I encourage you all to go over to the Farmers.gov New Farmers webpage.
2: Well, Ashton, I have just one other piece of news here before we talk markets. And that is actually dealing a little bit with the markets. But the CME group has shared that most of their trading pits are officially going to shut down. And we didn't have a ton of pits that were still quote unquote trading on the floor. But they said because of COVID-19 and other factors, you know, not having a ton of floor volume, they have decided they will not be reopening their open outcry pits. So a little sad there to see some of that history officially shut down now. And it was a cool, I mean, I didn't get to go to the pits in the heart of their excitement. I would have loved to, but uh, it's definitely it was definitely cool when I did get to go a couple of years ago and they were trading still on the floor, at least in a few of the pits and see some of the excitement in action. But that history is uh, no longer going to be available for folks to go visit in the future
0: well it certainly is a sad day Delaney but I'm excited to
2: see what kind of day it was in the markets are you ready to talk numbers I certainly am because it was a good day today in the markets pretty much all across the board grains and livestock but let's kick things off here first in the grain markets the July corn contract up 11 and 3 quarters cents today to close at 7.08.5 December. New crop corn got above six dollars today, ending at six oh four and three quarters up some twenty-four and a quarter cents. Soybeans today, the July contract adding four cents to close at fifteen forty-two and a quarter November ending at 13.82 and 3 quarters up about 19 and a half cents today on the day and chicago wheat july contract adding 17 and 3 quarters cents at 7.44 and a half december new crop excuse me december adding 17 and a half cents at 7.46 and a quarter hopping over to take a look at the livestock markets. We had a little weakness at first today, but we were able to pull through for a stronger day all across the board with the June live cattle contract up a dollar forty to close at one fourteen forty two and a half the August up a dollar ten to close at one seventeen seventy two and a half. Feeder cattle higher today as well, with the May contract up $1.72 and a half to close at $131.47.5. The August up $2.05 to close at 145 22 And in lean hogs, the June lean hog contract up $87.5 today to close at $114.42.5. The July above $114 as well, up $1.05 to end at $114.47.5. Really, Again, exciting moves we're seeing in this lean hog market. And the question is going to be how much higher will we head here? And wrapping up our markets in the class three dairy milk futures, the June contract losing a dime today to close at 1968, the July down a penny to close at 1983. Ashton, without further ado, let's kick it over to your conversation for today's interview.
3: All right. Today, we are joined by Dr. Chad Hart, who is an agriculture and natural resource economist and professor at Iowa State University. Thank you for joining us today, Dr. Hart. It's my pleasure to be with you today. All right. Before we dive into our topic, which is on food inflation, I'm aware that you have been on our podcast before, but for those that don't know you, can you give us a little bit about your background and what it is you do? Sure. Um, Background. I've been here at Iowa
1: State for, oh, golly, nearly 30 years now. But um, the last... Twelve years, I'm the um, crop market economist here at Iowa State. So mainly, I'm I'm talking with farmers about the factors that drive corn and soybean prices um, across the state of Iowa. But in doing that, you end up talking about what is happening within the the meat markets, for example, or within the grocery store, because. As you think about agriculture, the idea is the price that the farm receives is related to the final price of the goods that we pay for at the grocery stores, at the convenience stores, at the Walmarts and Costco's as we go through life. So pointing out the connections between the various levels of the markets that agriculture participates
3: in.
0: Well, Dr. Hart, I'm not sure why we haven't had this discussion already, because we're well into a year into this global pandemic, and we're starting to see people are going back out, they're eating more at restaurants and getting together more, you know, than we saw at this time last year. But What remains a big topic is food inflation. And we haven't really touched on this before on the Ag News Daily Podcast. So before we really take a deep dive into what's going on, can you just give us a few key points on what we're seeing with this food inflation? Sure.
1: So as we're looking at the cost of food, you know, at the grocery stores and as we go out to eat as well, the idea is food inflation is looking at the the cost for that food and how it's changing over time. And what we've experienced over the past year, sort of as COVID has hit and impacted not only the US, but the globe, is that we have seen the rate of food inflation increase. Prior to the pandemic, we were looking at food inflation that generally ran, say, from one and a half to 2% a year, meaning that you were seeing that cost for food slowly increasing over time by about a percent, a half to 2%. As we've gotten here within the COVID um, year that we've had over this past 12 months, we have seen that pace almost double. Um, now we're looking at food inflation in the 35 to 4% range on a per year basis. So we are seeing those, if you will, that that cost of food is going up higher than it has um, in the past. And it's being driven by several things that we're talking, we'll, we'll end up talking about here. And COVID is part of the picture, but not all of the picture when it comes to why we've seen an increase in the
3: level of food inflation over time. So, what I would like to talk about is kind of uh, other countries around the world. Uh, right now, it seems like food inflation keeps creeping back into the news wires. Um, Just different factors affecting places like Russia, Ukraine, China. Um, Can we ever see that affecting the United States? Oh, we can.
1: And like I say, actually, we already are as well. We have seen our internal rate, like I say, almost double over the past year. And like I say, what's driving it is a variety of factors. For example, when we're looking at the cost of food at, at the grocery stores, it is related to the cost of the underlying farm products that we're buying there. And for example, you know, since I work for Iowa State, like say we deal with corn and soybeans here a lot within the state. And we've seen the prices for corn and soybeans increase by about 50% over the past year. Some of that increase in the, you know, the prices for corn and soybeans does translate into prices that we see at the grocery store. Now, we're not seeing... 50 to 60% increases of the price at the grocery store, but we are seeing like say prices going up by three and a half to 4%. So that tells you there are some mitigating factors that happen between the farm gate and the grocery store. But we've also seen changes in the cost for transportation. Oil, you know, 12 months ago was costing somewhere between 20 and $40 a barrel. Now we're talking about $60 a barrel. So we've seen a, a large increase there. And so there are all sorts of reasons why we're seeing this cost pressure build up behind the cost that we're seeing with our food. And I think one of the things that Dawson, your question points out here is, is that it tends to magnify, um, based upon the development of the country itself so when you were talking about you know large developed countries like the us food inflation tends to be rather small but when we start to look at developing countries or those least developed countries that's where we tend to see the largest increases in terms of food inflation
3: right and when i was kind of going overseas you know the big new the big headline right now seems to be uh Russia, with all these sanctions being either imposed or threatened by the U.S. as well as the EU. And so now with the Russian military kind of building up on Ukraine's border, um, can we see that have a big potential impact as well?
1: It can, uh, but it it really comes down to does these political and military actions impact food and, and feed trade throughout the world? And that's where I would say, especially as we look at Russia and Ukraine, we are starting to see that, that as we see these political issues and and building up to a possible military Mm -hmm. intervention there, that is having a dramatic impact on the flow of food products across borders. And that's one of the biggest things that drives price wedges between different countries. While you may see food inflation prop up in some areas, but not spread worldwide because of those political conflicts.
0: So, Dr. Hart, you've mentioned that there's a variety of factors other than the coronavirus that are, you know, causing this food inflation, which honestly is kind of a surprise. When you take a look at food inflation, I think a lot of people and and me included would really just point the finger at COVID-19. But with that being said, is there any prior things like this that have kind of happened in the food industry that we can kind of compare to, to see if there's any kind of light at the end of the tunnel?
1: Well, there is. And when you think about food inflation, I mean, what we're experiencing right now, um, I would say the closest we've seen to something like this, I'd have to take you back to probably uh, a decade ago, 2010, 2011, especially 2011 into 2012 is an area where we saw food inflation in the U.S., roughly about this three and a half to four percent range. And a lot of it was being driven by some of the factors that are driving the issue today. When you think about some of the food inflation we're seeing right now, COVID's created part of it, but a, a big chunk of what we're seeing right now is that global demand for agricultural products is very strong right now. And so from the U.S. perspective, what that means is we're seeing a lot of agricultural exports that are being bought from the U.S. and and shipped to other countries. That strong demand globally is helping push commodity prices higher, and that translates into higher food prices as we look as well. The same thing sort of happened back in 2011 and 2012. Again, what was creating that pressure there was a little bit of global demand for ag products, but specifically in agriculture, we were seeing the biofuel demand really grow. And that created some some upward price pressure for commodities, which creates some upward price pressure for the food markets. And so there we've got some similarities between the last time this happened about a decade ago, and they're both being driven by demand for the the underlying products here the you know the the corn soybeans the beef the pork um, that becomes ultimately the food products that we see at our grocery store
3: all right so i'm glad you brought up demand and and we're kind of seeing when prices are getting high that some countries especially china when they're trying to look for feed is that they're switching to different alternatives when a price of one commodity gets too high Uh, but just as an overall perspective you know when we're seeing demand strength, in the U.S. especially, or other places in the world, um, do you think the higher food costs will eventually impede that demand? Well, they do, and that's the deal. If you think about the, this, this food cost inflation,
1: you know, it, what it does is it gets folks looking, as you say, at alternatives. And as folks look at those alternatives and make some switching to some of those alternatives, that takes some of the pressure away from that, you know, if you will, that demand pressure away and helps reduce that food pressure moving forward. So if we go back and think about what happened a decade ago, the idea is that we saw this increase in in food costs, especially late in uh, 2011, going into early 2012. But by the time we got to the end of 2012, we saw those food inflation rates drop back down below 2%. In essence here, what happened was we saw a little bit of that replacement. The idea is that people looked for alternatives. We also saw... Some, some bigger food crops uh, come in that year, especially when we look at the global supplies in wheat and rice, specifically back then. And so you can get these uh, actions, some of them on the demand side, some on the supply side, which help alleviate the pressure that builds up on, on food inflation.
0: So Dr. Hart, back in February, the U.S. released a report by the Economic Research Service that projects that food price inflation will decline over the course of 2021, settling back down to the 20-year historical average. Do you think that this is going to be likely, or are we going to see other hiccups as 2021 winds down? I mean, we're only in April, about to be May. So what is your outlook for the rest of the year?
1: Well, I'll say this. When when the ERS put that, that report out there, they basically made the assumption that we're looking at, the, you know, if you take into account a, let's call it, typical production year within U.S. agriculture, then that would lead to that decline in food inflation as we look out there. I think there are some factors to watch that may signal that we could see this inflation um, have, um, let's call it, longer legs as we look out throughout the rest of 2021. I think one of the biggest challenges that the, um, the agricultural and food markets are facing right now is that when we look at our major producing regions worldwide, whether we're looking here at the US, down into Brazil and Argentina, or even in the Black Sea region with Southern Russia and Ukraine, those are the three big sort of crop production areas in the world. All three of those areas have been experiencing some um, drought or, or drier conditions over the last 12 months. And I know here in the U.S., those drought conditions have persisted as we look into this year's growing season. If those drought conditions persist long enough, that will have a negative impact in terms of, you know, food and feed production as we look here in the U.S. in 2021. And if we reduce those supplies, that would mean that this food inflation would stay higher as we go deeper into the year.
0: Well, Dr. Hart, we've talked about, you know, what's going to be anticipated as 2021 goes on, and hopefully we can see some of that food inflation go down. But on the other side of things, can we see food inflation being even higher than it already is?
1: Yeah, we, we definitely can. And we have somewhat in, in somewhat recent past. If you go back to 2008, we did see food price inflation get up into that 6% range, a fairly strong rate. Especially compared to what we've gotten used to over the past couple of decades, but when you think about food inflation, the idea is that you know typically we do see some strong bouts of this, um, you know once or twice a decade. For the U.S., for the most part, food since the 1980s has been very stable. But if you go back into like the 1970s, that's where we did see double-digit percentage increases in food inflation over time. So you can see these large spikes. Um, for the most part, the U.S. market does tend to avoid them, but they do happen every once in a while. So what we're seeing here is a, is a what I'd call a small increase, but you know feels substantial, especially compared to recent history with what we've seen with U.S. food markets.
3: Well, Dr. Hart, this has been a very intriguing conversation. I'm sure all of our listeners are very curious about what we're going to kind of see, uh, you know, finishing out the year as we come into the summer months, and then also kind of what you know, 2022 will be, be looking like. But until then, I think we're just going to be along for the ride and kind of see what happens. But uh, other than that, thank you so much for your time. It's my pleasure to be with you today.
0: again, a big thank you there to Dr. Chad Hart for coming and talking to us about food inflation. We've been kind of hinting towards this interview for quite some time now. We've been really stacked up lately with interviews, Delaney. So I'm glad that this one is finally airing, but we have a ton of great stuff planned for the rest of this month. So folks, be sure to tune in on agnewsdaily.com so you don't miss any of those great interviews and follow along with us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram as well while you're at it at agnewsdaily.com. With that, Delaney, should we let the people go? Let's let them go.